Hey everybody, this is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. And we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to. Please get a hold of us at lafayettenaz.org. Have a great day. So I'm not a garage sale person, but some of you are. And, and some of you might be a little bit smarter than me. I've been reading these stories in preparation for the sermon this week of, of, of things that people found in garage sales. And I, I'd, like, I'd like to share a couple of them with you. So the first thing we're going to do is start with this picture. It's a picture of a vase. Or if you live in West Lafayette, that's a vase. <laughs> and um, here's how it goes. This, this vase was purchased by a family in, in Scotland in the early 2000s. And they bought this, this vase or this vase for um, 1.42 euros. They bought it at a garage sale, and they didn't even buy the vase. They bought it because they liked the plant that was inside of the vase. (laughs) So when the plant died, they put the vase away up in their attic. Totally forgot about it. All right. In 2008, the, the BBC has a TV show called Antiques Roadhouse. And the show Antiques Roadhouse was coming into their town. And this couple really wanted to participate in this show, so they started to think, what do we have that we could take to the people for them to tell you, you know, if it has any value? So they racked their brain, thought of all the things, and then they remembered, oh yeah, we bought that glass vase at a garage sale. So they show up to the show, they wait in the long line, holding their vase that they'd bought for 1.42 euros, thinking this thing is worthless. They got to the front of the line and they talked to the people who were surprised to see a vase like that. And what they informed them was this vase that they bought because of the plant that was sitting inside of them, was actually this really desirable object of art. And they later sold this vase at an auction for 406,000 euros. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. This vase always had that kind of value. It was always that valuable. It was hidden from them. The value of it was hidden from them. But it was always that valuable. Here's the more recent one that absolutely is mind-blowing to me. Some of you might have watched the show Storage Wars. Storage Wars. Who knew this was a thing? But apparently this is a thing. What you can do is you can buy the storage units that people don't pay the bill on. So let's say that I have too much stuff, so I rent a storage unit, and there I store all my junk. 
and then I forget to pay the bill for a while, or I willingly choose not to pay the bill for a while because that stuff is meaningless to me. Well, then the owner of the company written in the contract says, I can auction off the possessions of your storage locker after X number of missed payments. This is the show Storage Wars. So this is a true story. You can Google this as I'm telling it to you. I am not, this is not a preacher story where you make things up. This is actually true. <laughs> Recently, just this fall, somebody bought a storage locker from the guy who does storage wars for $500. He opened the storage locker. Inside of the storage locker was a safe. This is very common, that there's safes in storage lockers. But this person hired two locksmiths. The first locksmith couldn't crack the, the, the safe open. The second locksmith did. Inside of the safe it, that was inside of the storage locker that was purchased for $500 was $7.2 million of cash. Cash. Now, there's a lot to say here. One of the things is, how much money do you have to have to not realize you failed to pay the bill on... <laughs> on $7.2 million of cash. Long story short, when the person, this made headlines, and when the person found out, oh my goodness, they bought my storage locker, they negotiated with the buyer of that storage, the owner negotiated with the buyer of that storage locker, and listen, the buyer, out of his own good heart, agreed to give back the contents of the safe for, in exchange for $1.2 million. $500 turned into $1.2 million. Now listen, that thing was always that valuable. That storage unit was always that valuable. But it was hidden. Its value was hidden in plain sight. We're about to read um, a portion of Scripture that several years ago um, was a discovery for me that led me through an entire reread of the Bible. And I think I'm not the only one who's discovered this, but I think what has dawned on me is the kind of discovery that's hidden in plain sight. It's always been there, and it's always been this valuable in our efforts to follow Jesus, but for whatever reason, it never clicked with me until, until this passage of Scripture jumped off the page to me. So, Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, announcing, Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Now, John was the one whom Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is God's word for us this morning. You can be seated. Now, those short little verses of Scripture that we just read this morning include a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. That prophecy, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, that prophecy is quoted 
in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, they include those words of Isaiah. Isaiah saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And that word way in Greek is the word hados. Hados. And it literally just means a road. Or it means a path. Or it means a way that you travel on. But it came to mean so much more than that. It started to pick up some meaning throughout the Bible. And it came to mean not just simply a road, but it became like this metaphor for a life's direction or a heart's intention. It became this word picture for a way of life lived together. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. And I just want to show you one more example in the Gospels before we turn our attention to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible open or your app open, turn with you to to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is the end of the most famous sermon in recorded human history. It's the sermon that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And so these are Jesus' words. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, he says this. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad, and the way, hados, the road, is wide. So, of course, it's popular, and many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow. The haras, the road, is difficult, so few people find it. So, according to Jesus, then, there are many ways to live. Many ways. One of those ways ends and destruction. Another one of those ways to live ends in life itself. Now that same metaphor, the way, is used by Matthew, it's used by Mark, it's used by Luke, it's used by John. It goes on into the New Testament. In fact, here's what begins to happen. Followers of Jesus, and we learn this in the book of Acts, Followers of Jesus, before they were ever called disciples, before they were ever called apprentices, before they were ever called Christians, before they were ever called the church, followers of Jesus were called people of the way, or just the way. Let me show you some examples. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, this is talking about the persecution of followers of the way. If he found persons, look, Not if he found persons who belonged to the church. If he found persons who belonged to the way. Go to Acts chapter 19, verse 9. Some people had closed their minds, though, and they refused to believe and publicly slandered the way. This is one of the best verses in the Bible. It's like straight out of Star Wars. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. At that time, there was a great disturbance erupted about the way. Go to Acts chapter 22, verse 4. These are words now from Paul. I harassed those who followed this way. Acts chapter 24. I do admit this to you, that I am a follower of, he doesn't even say a follower of Jesus, doesn't say a follower of God. I am a follower of 
the way. Acts chapter 24, later on, verse 22, Felix, who's a Roman official, who had an accurate understanding of the way. Throughout Scripture, long the testimony is clear, long before you and I were called Christians, long before we were even identified as meeting or gathering in a church or known as the church, you and I were known as followers of the way. The way. Now that's a very small sample Over a hundred times that word is used in the New Testament. And my point is this. This isn't some sort of offshoot sort of a thing. This is a major theme throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's a major theme running throughout the Bible from cover to cover. And here is the discovery that I think is hidden in our plain sight that we've missed for whatever reason for so long in the Western church. The discovery is this. The way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. It is not just a set of ideas. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. The way of Jesus is a way. Nothing more And nothing less. It is an all-encompassing, overwhelming, all-in way of life. It's not and it cannot be reduced just to a set of beliefs or ideas. It's not and it can never be reduced just to ethics, a set of do's and don'ts. And here's the really sad thing to me. The church, and not just this church, but all churches, the church for way too long has had a lot to say. We've had a lot to say about what we should and should not believe. The church for so long has had a lot to say about what we should and what we should not do, but we've had so little to say about lifestyle. So little to say about how we actually should live our lives. So Jesus would regularly set up shop and he'd teach and he'd preach with people and he would make this bold, audacious claim. And his claim was just simply this. I have life on offer. I have life to offer you. Just from the Gospel of John, here here are some examples of that. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water flow within them. This one's more popular. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has life to offer to us. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, the simple answer is, and I know what you all are thinking, well, we get it by believing in Jesus. And that's absolutely right. But believing in Jesus doesn't mean that we nod our head to the list of ideas that Jesus believed in. 
Believing in Jesus doesn't mean that we ascribe to a do this and a do not do this. To believe means to put our trust in, commit our whole life to. It's to follow Jesus. Jesus has life on offer. How do we get it? We say around here like this. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want that life that Jesus has, that eternal quality and kind of life that bubbles up from within like a never-quenched, never-ending stream, if you want that life, then you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now listen, this is basic math. This is basic math. Our life is the byproduct of our lifestyle. Our life is what our lifestyle produces. Does that make sense? If you want the life, you have to adopt the lifestyle. The lifestyle produces the life. The life that we have right now is being produced by the way that we live our life. It's basic, basic math, which means that the rhythms, the routines, the rituals, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, all of those things accumulate and they add up. And the end result of that lifestyle that we have right now is the life that we're currently living. As Stephen Covey, at the height of his popularity in the 90s, said this, we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. Because he knew something. He tapped into something there. Our life is the byproduct of our lifestyle. So the invitation of Jesus was and still is, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Or come and pattern your life Pattern your life after mine in order to experience the life that I am offering to you. Now, when we talk about following Jesus around here, we try to break it down. We try to break it down into three small steps, three simple ideas. The first is, the first step of following Jesus is belonging to Jesus. And the second is becoming like Jesus. And then the third is doing what Jesus does. And belonging to Jesus, step number one, that is a recognition that everything and everyone in this world wants to make a claim over us, wants us to belong to them. There are forces that exist in this world that want to tell us from the day that we are born, they want to tell us who and what we are. You are a consumer, so you need to buy more things. You are a producer, so you are only worth what you are able to make. You are an individual, and you only have to answer to yourself. Belonging to Jesus keeps first things first and recognizes that first before anything else, we belong to God. So we're, it is this whole life orientation to the reality that God is all around us. And the end goal of belonging is that our mind, our awareness, would constantly return back to the one to whom we belong. And so as we live from that kind of heart posture of awareness 
and connection to the Holy Spirit, we experience this quality of life that can be classified as divine. That's step number one. Start there. If you're newer to this whole following Jesus thing and you're looking for a tangible handle or a tangible first step, the first step is to realize when you wake up tomorrow morning before anything else, you are God's child and you belong to God. And we live our life in accordance to who or to whom we belong to. If we belong to all of the other forces that exist in this world, well, then we're going to live our life according to how they tell us to live. But the first thing is we belong to God. So we're going to do what he says. That's goal number one. The second is to become like Jesus. And I believe now more than I have at any other point in my entire life that the greatest thing that we will ever get out of this life, the greatest thing that God will ever get out of our life, the greatest thing that our friends, that our family will get out of our life is the person that we become as we are following Jesus. Now, in too short of time, our family has experienced the death of two of the matriarchs of our family. I've been to too many funerals recently. And what it's reminded me over and over again is that when all is said and done, the only thing in life that will last forever, the only thing that will last forever is the relationships that you cultivated And the person that you became. Your character. The person that you have become. That lives on. And will stand the test of time. And when we come to the end of our life, the sad reality and the thing we often forget is this. We have to accept the metrics for success. And the metrics for success at the end of a life are not the number of decimal places in your bank account. The metrics for success at the end of of your life are not the number of friends or followers that you've accumulated on social media. It's not the sales numbers that you generated. Whatever it is for you, it's not that. The metrics for success are the relationships we invest in and the person that we have become because Jesus changed us. And the goal for following Jesus isn't just to stop at belonging to Jesus. It is through belonging to Jesus to become more and more and more like Jesus, to be transformed by the Spirit of God to become more like Him. And here's the thing. The more we become like Jesus, the more we end up becoming like the person that God has always created us to be the more we become like our true selves that we're all searching for. All right, that's goal number three. And then goal number three is to do what he did. To do what he did. This is really simple, right? So like if you're training to be a plumber, the goal is to one day plumb a house. And if you're training to be a counselor, the goal is to one day counsel someone. So if we're training to become like Jesus... The goal is to be capable of doing the kinds of things that he did. That's the end goal. So, belong to Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. Now listen, if you want a really clever way to remind that, we actually have a few t-shirts that are still left over. You can find them in the lobby. We only have size small and size medium. So for you skinny folk, 
you are in luck. Five bucks, 10 bucks, I don't know how you pay anymore, but just take it for free at this point. But, but the t-shirts are out there. Here's the point. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. And in order to do that, it requires us to organize our entire life around those three goals. Because when we think of following Jesus like a side hobby, like something that we can do on the weekends, but then we don't do during the week, the end result is that we never achieve the kind of life we're looking for. But if following Jesus is the driving engine of all that we are and all that we do, the result of that is that we experience that same quality of life that Jesus experienced. And when I say organize our lives around it, I literally do mean organize. I mean, put it on a calendar. Organize your calendar around that. Schedule it into your day so that it becomes a reality. I read this this line recently from, from Dallas Willard, who's a brilliant writer. Dallas Willard said this, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. So we have to arrange our routine, our work week, our weekend, so that the most important thing, the thing that that calendar will produce, is contentment, joy, and confidence in our everyday life with God. And this is the kind of life that Jesus has always dreamed and designed us for. It's the life of Jesus. And, the law, and life is a byproduct of our lifestyle. If we live a certain way, it produces a certain kind of life. If we want a different kind of life, well, then we need to live a different kind of way. And so to get in on the life that Jesus has for us, we have to walk that way. We have to live that way. We have to follow Jesus. Now, I want to piggyback on what we talked about last week. All of this takes training. All of this takes training. Living the way of Jesus takes practice. And Jesus actually even assumed that it would take practice for us. Again, the end of Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has these words. In fact, these are the very last words of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built their house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, beat against the house, but it didn't fall because it, firm, it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who's, who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, beat against that house, it fell and was completely destroyed. He says, 
he assumes to live this way takes practice. And as we talked about last week, it's not about trying really hard. It's about training and being trained really hard. And I've used illustrations all over the place to to help us understand how we become people who are capable of this. But let's say that you wanted to become someone who is capable of bench pressing your body weight. Let's say that that's a goal that you wanted to be able to do. So what you would not do is you would not just go to the gym tomorrow and try really hard to do it. You would put 180 pounds or whatever that number is for you on the bar and you would lay down and you would give it all that you've got and you would try to get that thing off of the rack, first of all, and then it would plummet and it would cave in your chest cavity. And if someone wasn't around to help you, you would show up on a YouTube video later and we would all have a good laugh. We'd all have a good laugh. But you tried really hard. No. If you wanted to become the kind of person who's capable of bench pressing your body weight, what you would do is tomorrow you would go to the gym and you would lay down on that thing and you would put nothing, no kind of weight on that bar. A bar weighs 45 pounds. If you can't do 45 pounds, maybe you start with a PVC pipe. And then here, here, this is really cool. You may or may not know this. At any good gym, they have these itty-bitty little weights that are two and a half pounds each. I think they're designed for yoga classes, but I find them really helpful myself. And then you stick the two and a half pound weights on either side. Now you've increased the weight by five pounds. And you see if you can do that. And if you can do that, then next week you add a little bit more in there. So that over time... You become the kind of person who's capable of laying down on a bench, having your body weight suspended above you, lowering it to your chest, and pushing it it up. You train for that. You don't just try for it. Now, it's really hard. It's still really hard. But trying really hard is impossible. Training is hard but doable. The problem is that very few of us approach our relationship with God. Very few of us approach our following with Jesus with that mentality. So let's say that we have a weakness in our life, and it always kind of creeps back into our heart. Whether that weakness is lust, or envy, or greed, or dishonesty, or laziness, or gluttony, or pride, whatever that weakness is. Let's say that we have one. I know it's a stretch. You're all perfect, but let's say that we do. And for so many of us, our approach to fixing that problem, our approach to growth or change or transformation, our approach is, I'm just going to try really hard. And so you got inspired by a sermon, or you got inspired by Caleb, or you got inspired by staring at the Wabash River out in nature, whatever it is that inspires you, you got inspired. Girl, wash your face, you got inspired. And so you're going you're gonna to try really, really hard, and you're going to start tomorrow morning. We get a bit of inspiration, and we say, this is going to happen this time. I'm going to try so hard. So we go out, we do it, and what happens? We crash and burn. 
We crash and burn. But what if we approached that same problem with the same kind of mentality that every other thing we train for in life? What if we approached it that way? What would that look like? Maybe it would look like how it's looked for followers of Jesus for thousands of years. We'd begin to be trained to become like Jesus. And so we engage in the practices of Jesus. We actually do the things that sustained Jesus' lifestyle. We open our Bibles because Jesus knew the Scriptures, and he read the Scriptures, so we're going to read the Scriptures. We practice that. We begin to pray because Jesus retreated to pray. It sustained his life. It was his lifestyle. Let's adopt that lifestyle. Let's train, and that way we begin, we begin to, to pray. We we, we start to give of our resources. Jesus was incredibly generous with his resources, his calendar, his time, his money. So that's what we start to do. And we do these things, and as we do them, we realize that we are being transformed from the inside out. Now, one way to overcome lust or pride or greed or whatever it is, one way to overcome it is to just try really hard. Another way to overcome it is to wake up and bef- tomorrow morning and before we do anything else, and I'm talking about before we even turn on the screen of our phone, before we do anything else, we read a psalm and we pause to pray. And then we put a reminder in our phone so that halfway through our day, we get a notification to take five minutes and stop and pray. And then the next weekend, we, we're going to set aside a good chunk of a day to rest and to worship. We start to decide, I want to serve somebody besides myself. And so we look at our calendar and we scratch out some time where we can serve someone. And we look at our wallet and we want to give some money away and not just keep it. We share a meal. Just the basics. Just the basics just the practices of Jesus. And through each one of those practices, our life is being opened by the Holy Spirit, and over time, we're changed. We're transformed. Now, that is still really hard work, but it is a lot easier than just trying really hard. It is through practicing the way of Jesus. It is through engaging in the practices of Jesus. Because here's the truth. When we take on Jesus' overall style of life, watch how Jesus' life begins to flow through you. When you take on his lifestyle, you get his life. If you want his life, you have to adopt his lifestyle. Matthew chapter 3 spoke of John. This is the one that the prophet foretold of. This is the one who was going to prepare the way of the Lord. The book of Acts consistently referred to our ancient spiritual fathers and mothers as people of the way. What if our church, what if you 
What if you weren't known for what you did and did not do or what you should or should not believe? What if you were known for living the kind of life that Jesus would have lived? What if you and I were known as people of the way? You know what? There would be a quality of life that would be flowing through us because if you, if you adopt the lifestyle, you get the life. If you want the life, you've got to adopt that lifestyle.